0: You are listening to Mommying While Muslim Podcast, where hosts Uzma and Zeba share their personal stories of mommying in a post-9-11 world. This podcast is designed with the Muslim American mom in mind, so grab a cup of coffee and pull up to their table.
1: As-salamu alaykum, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Mommying While Muslim Podcast. This is Uzma Jafri.
2: And this is Zeba Hassan. I was so excited because we essentially came straight from our our breakfast bylines on Fireside. So I get to see Uzma for a big chunk of today, Um, considering we're we're batch recording. So I didn't get to see her last week. So that it makes me feel like I'm missing something. So how has your week been since the last time we've chit-chatted?
1: My week was really good because and it may sound silly to you guys but something that made me feel so special and so loved and cared for happened and that was my husband and I went out for a date night we had dinner um and when I asked for coffee at the end of the night and decaf don't worry that's not why I'm oh, staying oh. up by the way
2: Zaba, I was like don't do that
1: <laughs> yeah I do not need coffee at night but um they brought the cream in the little cream holder and it was warm Zeba. Even when I make my own coffee, I put cold creamer in it. And I was Why? like, oh my gosh, how thoughtful.
2: <laughs> That's the difference maker between a good cup of coffee and a bad cup of coffee. So yes. I warm my um, cream. I don't drink coffee anymore, sadly. But even for my husband, when I make him, hus- I always warm the cream. Yeah.
1: Well, that's probably because you're a very considerate person. I think it's the difference between a good cup of coffee and a great cup of coffee. And it was a great cup of coffee with the warmed creamer. And I think I'm going to start doing that for myself. That will be my self-care. Because I almost cried. (laughs) I'm not hormonal or anything. I almost cried. Because I was like, that's so nice of you guys.
2: (laughs) Like piping That is the key. That is the key is to warm up the milk and put the the milk milk. in. And it just tastes so good. And now you're making me miss coffee.
1: It wasn't even milk guys. It was like proper creamer.
2: Proper oh, creamer.
1: Heck. Yeah. Proper creamer. So have the hot proper creamer and your week will go really well. But tell me how your week went. Sans coffee. You
2: know- a sans co- well you know what I'm like almost three months without caffeine and coffee wow. and I have to say I love it I, I don't have them. those dips in the afternoon so I'm not advocating it it's not for everybody but for me it was definitely part of my wellness journey but you know my week is always crazy because you know you probably hear a little bit of my voice being hoarse because guess what season it is now it's basketball season in the Husson household and mama screams and has to scream louder behind the mask so guess what I am screaming too loud. And every time I do, I think, oh my God, Isma's going to be so annoyed with me. (laughs) So I have been drinking tea, drinking water to make sure that my voice stays lubricated. So I, that's pretty much it because, you know, it's my last season for my oldest to be playing. And I've been watching him play since he was four years old. And, you know, in a blink of an eye, it's almost done. And he's not one of those kids that are under any false illusion that he's going to be playing in college, nor does he want to. So this is going to be our Last season, watching him play basketball. So, I am going to enjoy every second, every minute of it. And that's pretty much been my week, and what's going to be my week probably for the next 12 weeks. Oh, yeah till probably march and yeah. i'm good with that but i know we have a very particular soapbox for, from today and it's kind of translating a little bit over from our breakfast bylines on fireside so Isma, do you want to tell us what our soapbox for today is
1: yeah i feel like we talked a lot about guns this morning at breakfast Bylines. so if you haven't been checking those out um go on over those are at 11 o'clock on fridays um but this uh this week we did it a little bit early uh, we're going to talk about the Rittenhouse trial, because all of us were holding our hearts and hanging our heads about the verdict, as you know, Carl Rittenhouse, the 17-year-old who uh, traveled to, um, was it Kenosha? Yes, it I
2: was remember. Kenosha, Wisconsin. It was Kenosha, Wisconsin, Yeah,
1: for um, the, you know, to address the protests and the Black Lives Matter looting, quote-unquote, tongue-in-cheek, I'm saying that, um to address the looting that he anticipated was going to happen. And as a 17-year-old, he took a rifle... To take out protesters. That was his aim and intent. However, he was found not guilty of all charges of homicide, manslaughter, um, everything basically the prosecution was trying to try him with, which incidentally, none of those charges included terrorism. So that's interesting. But, you know, the reason why we're so upset is because, you know, not just because they found so many loopholes and the defense was able to prove that he was acting in self-defense, You know, uh, this is a quote from Michael Waldman. He's the president of the Brennan Center for Justice at the NYU School of Law. And he wrote the Second Amendment, a biography, which is the title of his book. I have not read it, but I will be. Uh, You can bet your boots. This is a product of gun culture, he says. It's also a product of laws that give white men with guns the ability to create chaos and sometimes get away with it. The prosecution was saying you can't create a dangerous situation. And then call self-defense after you've created the, the situation. So don't create the problem and then you won't suffer the consequences. So for all Palestinians, I see you and this is for you. Um, but basically what we have seen in the last year, um, and I think it's in response to the Rittenhouse uh, situation, the trial that, you know, just ended... Um, what we've seen in the last year, and we talked about on Breakfast Bylines too, is despite last summer and despite the violence that we saw last summer, and despite you know all of the issues with guns that we saw, um, at least three states, including Ohio, have loosened their gun control laws in the last year, and um, there's been more guns sold. And this is problematic. Remember that Rittenhouse got off on uh, one of his charges; uh, it was dropped even pre-trial because he wasn't supposed to have uh, a rifle for two reasons. One, he was a sexual offender from Arizona. It doesn't ma- matter if you're a minor, but a minor with a minor—he, you know, who was significantly younger—back in 2002 in Arizona, he wasn't supposed to have a gun in the first place. And then he traveled and apparently in Kenosha borrowed his friend's stepfather's rifle, full-on rifle, Um, and the charges were dropped because the law says that minors can't have short-barreled rifles. They can't have firearms, and when it comes to rifles, it's the short-barrel. So it's these loopholes that are going to get, I believe, primarily more white children um, off of um, charges like Rittenhouse was. So this is going to be problematic. If you had changed the color of Rittenhouse's skin, I am 99% sure it would have gone differently. And so what we will see as a result of this trial is again more white vigilantism in the United States which has been a problem for the last 300 years as um, black Americans know. Uh, but we will also see more children, I think, picking up guns and more school shootings happen. Um, our average is probably somewhere in the mid-20s. We haven't quite gotten there in 2021. But now that school is back in session like normal, um, I believe our guest today is going to have some insight uh, about this, this particular topic. Uh, Rittenhouse, it, the, the travesty of justice that has occurred, we're going to feel the repercussions, like front and center, and there's really nothing that we can do except hope that the families of the deceased, the three men who were killed, um, sue the crap out of Rittenhouse. Currently in my state, um, the university where he plans to enroll, there are several protests going on um, saying that he should not be allowed to come on campus and enroll in nursing, especially because per his social media, he was super uh, pro-police and probably should belong in law enforcement, because um, he did exactly what law enforcement does all the time, which is, you know, kill unarmed bystanders. So that's our soapbox for today. And I'm sorry that there's no call to action or anything that we can do about it right now.
2: And I appreciate the soapbox, but I would like to qualify not all people that are in law enforcement are killing other people. Yes. So I, I, Just I, a I lot of say them. That. <laughs> Uh, that, as, as my feels like there's a lot of them, but there are some good police officers out there, there that are. are trying to do their things. And for those people, we do see you and we we uh, appreciate it and keep helping your um, your other brothers yeah. and sisters in um, the armed forces to keep that up. But you know, uh, I, I, from one shocking news to another, the shocking <laughs> truth is that there. Do you know that there are like Muslim children? so many Muslim children in foster care systems, but guess what? They cannot be housed with other Muslim families. Why? Because we are not licensed to be foster families. Not only is it, our, uh, I believe, our social responsibility to get licensed, it is a religious imperative to get prepared for children of our faith communities and that their parents who actually need us. So we will be discussing this at length with our guest here today. Rania Shabib is the co-founder and board member of um, the board member of the Muslim Foster Care Association. Um, Her and her husband are licensed foster parents and have three beautiful children of their own. She has fostered several domestic and refugee youth. We really applaud her for that. Um, And she is trying to establish the needs to meet the growing needs of Muslim foster care children and their licensed caregivers through um, education, support, advocacy work. Rania also serves as the state of Michigan's foster care review board. As a board member, she regularly reviews foster care cases, provides uh, an objective perspective to courts regarding the child's safety and care as well as a permanency plan because that's really ultimately the goal of foster care system. Rania has a background in education and public health and we are so grateful that she is leading the charge um, for other muslim families assalamu alaikum rania and welcome to mommying while muslim assalamu alaykum Alaikum salam thank you
1: so you know before we get into um the show we usually ask our guests to tell us a little bit about their mommying story whatever you're comfortable sharing and about their mommying philosophy
0: oh okay Um, My mommying story. I have uh, three kids. Um, My oldest is right now. There's 17, 16, and 12, Um, two boys and a girl, and um, being a mother is such a blessing, and um, how I came to become a foster parent is I felt that the foster children were really no different than my own children, And I felt that, you know, God forbid, if there was ever a time when my own children um, entered the foster care system, then I would want somebody that I trusted um, to step up and and take on that responsibility.
1: That's amazing um, that you thought of, you know, that way. Like, if I ever needed foster care for my children. And I think there's this uh, misconception in the community, at least in my community, Uh, and I'm talking about my immediate circle of friends, that you only go into foster care if there's some kind of abuse happening in the house. But you can also go in foster care if a parent is hospitalized for a prolonged period and there are minors left in the house and somebody has to step up and be responsible for them. We've had a couple of cases like that locally. um, And that's been an issue because Mm -hmm. these minors were basically left unattended at home and we had to keep it hush-hush so that you know they didn't end up in the system while their mom recovered. And that was was a really long time. Um, Before we started recording, Rania, you were explaining why your kids were home today just on the tail of our soapbox Mm -hmm. i would like you to share with the audience why that is
0: yeah so we live about um 20 minutes away from oxford high school here in michigan and everybody's aware of the tragedy that happened at oxford high school um and then the local schools after the tragedy started to receive some threats and there were some rumors circulating so to be on the side of caution uh, over 60 schools closed mm-hmm. for Thursday and Friday just to, you know, make sure that they, the police could address any of these threats and that the kids, you know, had some time um, to kind of de-stress and, and um, you know, come to terms with the anxiety that they were feeling before they go back to school, hopefully next week. That's
1: insane. Absolutely a travesty that it they're is. so terrified.
2: I mean, it not it sad that like our kids, that is something that they're fearful of, right? Like it's not necessarily oh, like, I, I think they're more fearful of um, shootings in schools than COVID and all these things that are, you and know, bullying. that are it's just it, the, the normal it, stuff it, like, we're supposed to, to be afraid of. And to hear of.
0: them say, you know, to hear them to say, yes, I don't feel safe at school. Yeah, I don't feel safe at school. I mean, we, we have to hear that. We have to. You know, listen to them when they say that, and we need to do better for them.
2: Yes, a hundred percent. And you know, maybe we'll have you on because c- we talk about this. Uh, at length, unfortunately, is just a part of our daily occurrence of whether you're a momming while Muslim or in any other faith circles, it's definitely something that moms feel very fearful of, um, sending their kids to school, gun control issues, um, uh, the loopholes in gun control laws, and school shootings, which are very, very prevalent unfortunately, but, you know, to kind of go back to um, talking a little bit about the laws that prevent the uh, adoption of unaccompanied unaccompanied minors can you tell us a little bit about that and what does that even mean
0: yeah so there's there's really essentially there's two different kinds of foster care there's domestic foster care and
2: then refugee foster care
0: so the children that come into the refugee foster care system as unaccompanied refugee minors their their parental rights have not been terminated okay so technically they cannot be adopted so when they enter foster care, typically they they enter foster care as older youth. Um, some of them come younger, you know, but typically they are older youth because it is a difficult journey, and it's typically the older youth that are capable of um, making that journey. Mm-hmm. So once they enter foster care, they stay in foster care until they age out of the system, which will be around the age between the ages of eighteen and twenty-one, depending on when they choose to leave foster care and be independent. Um, Whereas domestic foster care is different. The goal of domestic foster care is reunification with the birth parents. So Mm -hmm. it's very different. Um, So that's always the goal. It's not always achievable. So the judge may at some point decide that the parental rights are terminated. And then in that case for domestic foster care, the child would become eligible for adoption. But that doesn't apply to refugee foster kids.
2: Okay, got it.
1: And a lot of that is because the hope is also that in the future, whenever the unrest in their countries of origin settles down, that they will be reunited with their families.
0: Yeah, so a lot of times um, the kids that come as refugee foster kids, either their parents are deceased or at some point due to the conflict, they've been separated from their parents. From either one parent or both parents, um, they've been separated. Yeah.
1: And international law forbids the adoption of these kids. Are we correct on that? So I I
0: don't know if it's international law specifically, but I do know that the parental rights were never terminated, um, that they are not eligible for adoption. Yeah.
1: My understanding is that um the international child trafficking laws uh prevent that. So um that's something that we'll have to look up or, you know, ask someone. Um but you're saying that a lot of these unaccompanied refugee minors are going to be in their teens. I know in Arizona, we're anticipating about a hundred coming over and the minimum age is 15. Mm-hmm. So all of the people that came as potential foster care parents, like immediately stepped back when they heard that. Um, and some of those were because of the metham issue. So can you talk about yeah. that, um, for our
0: audience? Yeah, sure. And I'll say, you know, just to kind of backtrack a bit, we've always had Muslim kids coming as unaccompanied refugee minors. This isn't really a new thing, I think, right now, because, you know, we see things play out in the media. And, of course, because the most recent crisis is what's going on in Afghanistan, uh, people have kind of a a heightened awareness right now, Mm -hmm. but it is something that's, you know, always been around. We've always needed licensed foster homes for domestic kids and refugee kids. now going to the you were speaking um in your area locally the kids that you've received i can speak to michigan we've um just the afghan refugee kids we have received about 250 in michigan alone um and i think they're you know they're they're brought to michigan because you we have mfca here so we're able to provide support and also because they know that there's a large muslim community in Michigan, and so the hope is to keep the kids connected to their Muslim community. Um, I will say what we, you know, just specifically with this group, we've seen kids as young as 10 years old arrive. Um, so yes, they are typically older teenagers, but we have seen um, kids as young as 10 as well. Um, and now regarding the Muharram issue. There's, you know, there, there's definitely. All, for, in, for, not yeah. to
2: interrupt you, but for our non Muslim audience, as we know, a majority of our, our, our listeners are, are non Muslim, what does mahram actually mean first? And then talk about why people are fearful of the mahram issue, specifically where, where older kids are concerned.
0: Sure. So I'm not an Islamic scholar, but <laughs> in my own words, um, a mahram is somebody that uh, a male. That is um, closely related to you, and is essentially somebody that you cannot marry. Um, and this is somebody that you know could be your your father, your son, your brother, your uncle, grandfather. These are all considered mahrams. Um, so somebody is a non-mahram if they are not in one of those positions or roles within the family. Um, so, for example, bringing in an older um, teenage youth would be a non-mahram coming into your home and living with you and essentially you're the caretaker of that non-mahram youth Um, so there are some boundaries that may need to be set up within the home but these are very manageable boundaries and um, they're not to be seen as you know obstacles it's definitely manageable and it it still allows for fostering. And I always like to point to the examples of, you know, within the Islamic faith tradition, fostering is something that's embedded in our faith traditions. So we have the examples from the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, that shows us that these, you know, these things are permissible and Muslims are encouraged to do it. Um, I can tell you, you know, I know Muslim women that foster, older youth, male youth, and what they do, for example, if they wear hijab, then they just, you know, they have certain areas of the home, for example, that they tell the youth that, you know, this is this is my area, you know, please don't come here, you know, like in the bedroom area, um, and so that she has an area within the home that she feels that she can take off her hijab and not have to worry about that, and then the youth is mindful of those of those boundaries. Um, but it's it's definitely something that's manageable and can be worked around. That's really
1: helpful, because I know that that's a big de- uh, deterrent to a lot of people, because, oh, I can't have a non mahram in my house, and that's categorically untrue, so...
2: Yeah, and, and yeah. we appreciate you uh, you following up on that because there are, um, I would imagine, circumstances, like you said, you can create different places in the house. There's so many things that you can do to kind of overcome some of those obstacles. And um, and I believe that MFCA probably has a lot of that written down to kind of help aid, aid some of that transitional, um, the transitional piece of that.
0: Yeah, and I will also say that you know, when when you are a foster parent, you will receive a call that will say, you know, we have this child, are you willing to welcome this child to your home? And if you are only comfortable with females, you know, then you can say, I only want females. And there are definitely, you know, female youth in the foster care system that are in need of a home. So even if the Muhram issue is something that's, you know, for whatever reason you see as being too difficult, there are absolutely other options.
2: No, I, I, I appreciate that. Um you know, I, I feel like First of all, you're uh, an angel to be taking on um, teenagers (laughs) voluntarily that are not (laughs) your own. So I definitely commend you and commend everybody that um, would do that because it's definitely a challenging, um, a challenging situation, regardless. And then you add teenager and the angst and all that that comes along. So it really takes a certain type of person to do that, and we need more people like that um, stepping forward. But you know, I would imagine that you have a lot of memorable um, experiences. Experiences as a refugee foster mo- foster mom. Um, like, could do you mind sharing? It can be a memorable one. It can be something that you were like, you know, a challenging one. We kind of want to know the the reality behind being a refugee foster mom. Yeah. Um,
0: so I've I've fostered both domestic and refugee, and I've fostered kids anywhere from as young as three months old to older teenagers. Um, one memory that always sticks Uh, because I feel it's such a beautiful memory and I love sharing it with people. My very first foster um, daughter uh, was also a refugee and English was not her first language. And one day um, after she was performing her prayer, I saw her making a supplication, making dua. And afterwards she said, you know, do you want to know what I was what I was praying for? And I said, sure. And she said I made a dua that May Allah allow the angels to welcome you into heaven the way that you welcomed me into your home as a stranger. Oh, oh my and I just yeah, thought, um, wow. I mean, for her to have those thoughts and to be able to even, you know, relay that to me in English, um, it was just so profound to me and really impacted me. And it was something that really stuck with me. And you're right, you know, having teenagers in your home or you know, having children in your home that are not your biological children but essentially you're their advocate Mm -hmm. you have to be the one to advocate for all of their needs um and it's it's absolutely challenging it absolutely changes your family dynamics but the reward Mm -hmm. is just just I don't have words to describe the reward you know I believe that there's rewards that we'll see here in this life but I also believe that there's rewards that are unseen to us um, but the reward is just immeasurable so I, I truly believe that anything that has a, a reward to it will have some challenge to it I
1: love that. nothing comes easy no that's a beautiful beautiful memory oh my gosh you should write that down mm-hmm. somewhere I hope you have <laughs> um, so going back to the uh, Muslim Foster Care Association can you tell us a little bit about um, how that originated um, and how it can help potential or current foster families um, in terms of the potential. Does it have like its own training program outside of like foster care college that most states have?
0: Yeah. So when we first, when I first became licensed, it was pretty immediate that I realized I needed support and that my Muslim community was not familiar with foster care and although they were very well intentioned didn't really know how to support us as a family or how to support our foster youth that were living with us um a mutual f- friend connected me with another muslim foster family and her and i became each other's support and we soon realized that you know if if we're going through this You know, imagine what the kids are going through, and we realized that we needed to start an organization to support the Muslim kids in foster care, and to support the families that are taking care of them, because we know the vast majority of the homes that the kids are placed in are homes of other faiths. So if we want to keep that child connected to their faith, you know, we have to be able to work with the family that is fostering them. so there's different things that we do. We, we work to raise awareness within the community. We provide educational training to foster care workers, to licensed families on, on best practices for caring for a Muslim foster child. We work to keep the child connected with their faith community through that. tutors and mentors. And basically, you know, even with transportation, making sure that they have a way to get to their local mosque. We provide them with care packages whenever we are notified that a Muslim child enters foster care. We provide them with a care package that has some faith-based items and really introduce ourselves to the child so that they know they have a connection to us. We also help agencies with placement. So they'll call us and say, you know, we have a Muslim child that we're looking to place. You know, do you have a home, uh, a Muslim home, or can you help us place this child? So there's there's so many things that we um work to support the children with um and i'm sorry what was the last part of your question I tried to
1: oh you know it was uh, on a, the lines of the training for the there's the foster college the hours that you have to put in for education in order to get licensed to be a foster parent yeah. does the mfca provide that for muslim families
0: so we actually provide that more for the agencies mm-hmm and for the um, licensed families of other faiths on how to care for a Muslim child. So we do work with agencies to provide that training. And you're absolutely right, to become licensed, you have to uh, complete a certain number of hours of training. But then, once you receive your license, each year to maintain your license, you also have to complete a certain um, number of hours of training. So yeah, that is something that we're involved with the agencies, but it's more geared towards uh,
1: non-muslims okay, no that's helpful to know.
2: No, I definitely appreciate that because because it sounds like you also work with non muslim fam- non-muslim families and kind of get them um, up to speed on the faith base if they happen to have uh, Muslim children in their home
0: right Is absolutely okay because okay, we perfect. know that we know that the the foster child will not feel that they're in a position to advocate for themselves and to speak right. up so they probably won't say you know during Ramadan they probably will to won't do that oh it's, yeah. it's you know I need to have a meal before the sun rises I need to have a meal when the sun sets you know on Fridays I'd like to go to the mosque or you know just those basics that um, they may not feel comfortable saying anything So we want to make sure that we're educating those that are around the foster child that are supporting them so that they have an awareness of what the needs of the child are. Because we want to make sure that these are positive experiences and positive relationships for the child so that we have positive outcomes. Um, Because we want to make sure, you know, we know that there's a lot of turnover with foster families. So we want to do what we can to support the families so that they can continue to foster.
2: I love that. So, so you you kind of alluded this, to this earlier in our conversation. How do you, how is the Islamic definition of fostering different than you know what we we know here in the West as a like being a foster family and and fostering a child?
0: So, when you're a foster family, you're essentially the temporary guardian for that child, right? So we know that they're they're. Sometimes people use the word "orphan," and I don't like using the word "orphan" because I think that that gets kind of um, confusing and it's not very accurate. Because okay. most foster kids do have biological parents that are living, but their circumstances are there are that they need temporary guardianship and they need, um, you know, a safe and stable, loving home to care for them just for that period of time. And as the foster family, you're not the one that's making the decisions you know when the child goes back to their parents or when that's not something that you're really involved in your goal is to ensure that the child has a safe and stable home and that their needs are being met got it
1: um and that is not unlike what we have in our now right of like assuming guardianship for a, a set right. period of time sometimes or you right. know sometimes so you definitely identity, for a child
0: Mm-hmm. Right, and I think you know yeah. I, I think what's really important within our dean is that you don't change the child's identity right they they still right. know who they are, they know who their their parents are, and that's that's very important um, yeah
1: when it comes to the unaccompanied refugee minors though um is there uh is there a way to support them? whether it's through mfca or through the state agencies um to support them through like a history of trauma or you know obviously because they're refugees they carry one level of trauma but is there any additional support for you know the traumatic experiences that a lot of refugee kids have on top of that yeah so
0: there's there's definitely the trauma that they've endured um I think it's important for, for really all foster kids to maintain strong, lasting relationships. They've had so much unexpected change in their life and so much instability that that stability alone um, is so... There, there's You see such positive results come from just having that stability. Um, they have a lot of needs. You know, sometimes I look at my own children and what their needs are, and then, you know, if you compare to foster kids, have even more needs Mm -hmm. because they've been through the trauma, they've been through the instability, right? So they have more needs. So there's so many ways that we can work to support them. You know, even if the biggest thing I would encourage people is to become a licensed foster family. There's such a shortage of licensed foster families, and there's such a need. And it always breaks my heart when kids are placed in group homes or residential homes. You know, they deserve a home environment with a family, Um, you know, rather than that group setting. That's what they deserve. So become licensed. If you can't, then volunteer with an agency near you. You know, become a a tutor or a mentor if you can't do that just help with transportation and those are relatively easy things that just require like background checks and some training um but we want to show up for these kids we need them to know that we are there for them our community is really good at donating money Mm -hmm. right we're a very generous community when it comes to donations but this is a cause that really takes some sacrifice on our end in um, our time and our effort, and we're gonna have to do more than, than make donations. I mean, donations are wonderful, don't yeah. get me wrong, we still want those, but we want, we want to give from ourselves as well. Yeah,
1: so just on the heels of that, um, I feel like that comment is perfect for my next question, which is what kind of support can the community give MFCA in doing its good work?
0: Um, a lot of what we do is making connections um, so we connect with different organizations that can support the work that we're doing. Um, people can go to our website and see the work that we're doing, and see if there's you know something that they're interested in being involved in or want to know more about, or even if it's just you know making a donation. Um, you can even specify what you would like your donation to go to, and we'll we'll ensure that. Um, so there's even just your prayers, you know, just making dua. Uh, um, then that's something that we appreciate as well. So there's there's different ways to be supportive and helping get the word out. I think, you know, we're still in the stage where I know now within our communities, people are starting to, to understand what foster care looks like and what it's about. And I think continuing that conversation so that there's no stigma attached to it, or there's no, you know, there, there's more of that deeper understanding. Um, if you have a foster family near you, Ask how you can support them. Maybe you bring them a meal one day. Maybe you help with transportation one day. You know, let them know that you're there for them.
1: On that note, if you did, would it be kind of like, you know, how we help our own mom sisters? Like, oh, can you pick up my kid from here? Can he forgot lunch? Can you drop it off there? In terms of actually, you know, having even temporary from your car to their home, dropping them off. If that was just a conversation that we had with another foster parent, would that require a background check before a foster parent was allowed to say, Hey, to my girlfriend, pick up my kid from school because yeah. whatever. How does yes. that process look? So
0: the foster kids are very protected, right? And rightfully yeah. so. Um, because they're very vulnerable and they need to be protected. So yes, if there's somebody that's helping you with transportation, um, or have you know having that one on one alone contact with the foster child. yes they will need a background check but it's so simple to get a background check Mm -hmm. all you have to do is fill out you know a few questions submit your driver's license Mm -hmm. and and then you're good for the year background checks need to be renewed every year um but it's, it's very helpful for foster families
1: Yeah, I can't even imagine. I mean, that's something super easy that we are all able to do, Um, but it's getting into contact with those Muslim foster families that are in, and even to be honest, non-Muslim families who are fostering, they need the same kind of support, right? So if we can offer that, I feel like that's one way to glue our very dispersed, very uh, garage door only neighbors that we have transformed into in the last 20 years. We weren't like this before. So let's bring us back together.
0: I mean, we need to be part of the conversation, right? We need to be at the table. So I absolutely agree. You know, it, regardless of the foster family's faith or, you know, who they're fostering, we need to be there to be a support for them. Yeah. Because essentially, you know, we're all in this for the kids. And and we need to ensure their their stability and their, uh, their well-being. Mm-hmm.
1: 100%. Um, for a lot of Muslim families, they... Uh still think that, oh, they don't understand that there's a licensing process, and both parents in the household, like, basically all adults in the household have to be licensed mm-hmm. foster parents, right, before a foster child is brought in?
0: So not all the adults, as long as there's, um, but if it's a married couple, then both the both both the husband and the wife will have to go through the licensing. Um, it's, the licensing process takes three to six months. My husband and I were able to do it in three months. Um, it's there's a lot of paperwork involved. You um, have to undergo some training. there's background checks. They interview everybody in the home. They do home visits to make sure that the home is safe. You have to submit um, all of your monthly bills. You have to submit your pay stubs because they have to ensure that your income is able to cover your monthly expenses. I mean, some people see these things as intrusive. But honestly, again, they're just ensuring the the well being and the safety of the child. Um, so there's definitely good reason for it, and and you know it's 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 doable. Yes, there is some work on your end um, to become licensed, but it's absolutely doable. And these days with everything being virtual, so many of the trainings are offered virtually. So I think it in that sense it's even easier than you know several years ago when we were licensed. That's
1: wonderful to know. And for anybody listening who's ever thought about it and who's considering it, please just at least find out what's required um, in your state. Pretty much all the state agencies operate in this general manner that Rania described, mm-hmm. but there may be some more specific stuff or maybe your hours are a little bit longer or whatever in your state. So find out how to do it and find out a wh- about the ways that you can support these agencies and the families that are um, aligned with them. Even if it means that you don't bring a child into your house, but there are ways, mm-hmm. not just with rides and the meals, um, but you talked about respite. Um, I think before mm-hmm. we recorded offering respite to a foster care family where if they're going on vacation, they're not allowed to take the child out of state, correct?
0: Well, so to take a child out of state, um, you just need uh, court approval. Mm-hmm. So it's it's relatively easy to get court approval, especially, you know, in some cases you may need the permission of the birth parents. Yeah. Um, but... Mostly, usually you can take them out of state, but you cannot take them out of the country.
1: Yeah, yeah. So if you were going overseas, then you would need a family to take care of the foster children temporarily, and that's providing respite care. So if that's something that you can do for a couple of weeks, it's kind of like having, you know, a guest, basically, because that's what these kids are. And we know how honored and holy guests are in our tradition so you know like this child made this beautiful to for you you know hopefully they're going to make it for you as well that would be like the ultimate I right
2: yeah awesome okay. I mean I, all I know is that I'm going to be looking up my local um, foster care uh, and that's something that is there like a national database of that per Um, state that we can kind of go and look and see where we can get some of this training or see if there are places for us to either volunteer because I know I have a couple of older kids that would love to be tutors like are there different types of organizations like that you can tell us in addition in addition to MFCA um, and how we can get involved.
0: Yeah. So what I tell people is to you know look for agencies near you um, I do want to say, though, that the not every area has refugee foster care services. Uh-huh. Um, okay. There are only, I believe, like 20 cities in all of the U.S. that have services for refugee foster care. So if, if you don't have that in your area, you know, there's still domestic foster care is everywhere. So that's still something that you can look for in your area and yeah ask them what does it um entail to become a volunteer and let them know that you're interested in volunteering and and i would start from there i would also start by trying to identify the foster families in your area and see how you can help them directly as well Got
2: it. i love that i absolutely love that are we ready for our
1: rapid fire this is Aba's oh favorite gosh. part because we've talked so heavy like it's, it's inspiring, but it's also really heavy. Like, oh, we have so much work to do. Subhanallah. Yes. I know, I'm like like writing
2: my mental notes. Right after yeah. this, go look this up. Go we'll this. Let's get involved. Yeah. Which, by the way, is, is you know, we, we tend to be in this bubble of a world. Of, you know, you get caught up in your day-to-day. So so yeah. when we have these really amazing, frank conversations of things that we need to, to be doing within our communities, I personally use it as a reminder of, okay, I feel like I'm doing a lot. But I'm not so let me go and start getting that done so I definitely appreciate that um uh, Rania and uh, and right now I think we're going to add 90 seconds to our timer if that's okay Uzma do you mind timing us and essentially what I'm going to do is send you uh, give you a whole bunch of rapid-fire questions and put you on the spot and I want you to just give me your instant response and it's a it's a way for us to get to know you a little bit better um in a, in a more intimate way but my first question always is what's your favorite book or what are you currently reading
0: oh one book that I really enjoyed reading was White Fragility
2: Mm-hmm. I've heard about that, that one I love that that's a great book and i tell people please read that what was the yeah. career you dreamed about when you were a kid as a kid I
0: thought I was going to be a veterinarian oh that's so funny that's I funny. thought I was going
2: to be a cashier and I thought that was gonna be <laughs> be so funny so fun Aim high. what is what we talked a little bit about your your favorite memories of being um, a foster care mother but like what is something within the foster care system that you can you can relay to us that involved your children and your whole family as being part of this foster care um, support system?
0: Um, one of the, my favorite things for my kids is for them to hear the, the stories directly from yes. the foster youth and for them to see where the kids came from. Um, and so that they have that realization that the life that they live is a very comfortable privileged. life and yeah. that exactly. And that there, there are kids out there that don't have the same privileges as them.
2: Yeah, I love that. And this is going to be your last question. Cause I, I love to hear this, but if you didn't have to sleep, sleep is my favorite thing. Everybody that <laughs> listens to the podcast knows I love sleep, but if you didn't have to sleep and you had all this extra time, what would you do with that time?
0: you know my favorite thing is sleeping my other thing is eating
2: eating eight extra hours of eating good food that's that's a blessing
1: but it has to come with the the caveat of not gaining weight
2: right exactly you're like can I eat everything and not gain weight or eat everything and then develop a super fat power I would love that (laughs) I'll find a way (laughs) that's awesome that's awesome
1: did you have any last thoughts for our audience Rania before we wrap up today
0: I just wanna say thank you for bringing awareness to foster care and really the need for licensed homes. And this is a conversation that I, I really hope that people continue to have. Um, and just, you know, find a way, find a way to be a part of the conversation, find a way to be a part of the solution. If we all do a little bit, it'll, it'll really make a lasting impact.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Like talking about it and lamenting about it over Chai at a party, which is what a lot of us do, yeah. um, we can be part of the solution. And again, even if it means that a child doesn't enter your home, there is always something that we can do. Um, As moms, there's always time for a child on our plate, I feel like, even if it's not yours. I feel like all children belong to me, so that's how I operate, but I hope that that, and I know that that extends outside of my kitchen table, but I know that many, many moms share that belief, and I hope that you, you know, do something about it. Thank you so much for joining us today, and we so appreciate you, Rania. Have
2: a great weekend. Thanks again for joining Zeba and Uzma on Momming While well Muslim today. Please email us your thoughts or questions and follow us on Facebook and Instagram because this podcast was designed to cater your needs. Make sure you check out the show notes to find the links and
1: resources for this episode. And remember to help a mama out and leave a review of the show as well as to like it on your
2: podcast app of choice because that helps us grow. Tune in next week for another episode of Momming While well Muslim. as alaikum everyone.